Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 39, The Master of Scotland. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Earl of Bath, or Bath, Geoffrey Tucker, Heather Bowman, Countess of Salisbury, and Baron Ollie. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we followed James Graham, the Marquess of Montrose, and Alistair McCullough as they rampaged through Scotland in the name of the king. Outnumbered, outgunned, and with few allies and supplies, the royalists enjoyed three victories against the Covenanter regime. The Battle of Tippermuir, where Montrose's army was outnumbered two to one. The Battle of Aberdeen, where Montrose's army was outnumbered two to one. And the Battle of Inverlochy, where, say it with me, Montrose's army was outnumbered two to one. Despite being outnumbered at each of these battles, the Royalists were determined and motivated, and many of them were hardened campaigners from Ireland, the Highlands, and the Islands. The armies they faced, while staffed with and supported by veterans from the main Covenanter army, well, they were mostly untested recruits and militia. They crumbled in the face of the terrifying Highland charge, which is understandable. Faced with a barrage of musket fire, Gallic battle cries, and a charging mass of claymore and axe-wielding killers, I would probably run away screaming too. We left off with the Battle of Inverlochy, where the Marquess of Argyle, Archibald Campbell, Chief of Clan Campbell, rode away from a battlefield choked with the corpses of his soldiers and clansmen. He was the effective leader of the Covenanter government, one of the most powerful nobles in the entire Kingdom of Scotland, and there he was, his arm in a sling, being rowed to safety. It was a devastating loss for both him personally and his government. But Argyle's humiliation wasn't over yet, because Montrose's year of victories wasn't over yet. If you're not keeping count, he still has three more victories to go. Battle 4. Aldern. 
the 9th of May, 1645. Despite Montrose's hope that his successes against the Covenanters would convince the Marquess of Huntley, the chief of Clan Gordon, to join him, Huntley remained in his hole in Sutherland. But not all of the Gordons remained so aloof. Lord Gordon, his nephew, suddenly switched sides. He'd sworn the Solemn League and Covenant he was Argyle's nephew, and he'd been with Argyle when the Marquis marched on Aberdeen to catch Montrose. But he'd opposed Argyle's brutal treatment of Gordon tenants, and promises of compensation only went so far. Allies of Montrose had been trying to persuade him to switch sides for months now, and it seems that when the news of Inverlochy reached him, that was the tipping point. Argyle was humiliated, the Campbells were in chaos, and Montrose seemed invincible. He arrived at Elgin, where Montrose had established a temporary headquarters, and he brought Gordon cavalry with him. His arrival was especially welcome because Montrose's army was forever short of horses. Montrose and Gordon became quite good friends, and around this time the Viscount of Boyne, another son of Huntley and the brother of Lord Gordon, arrived, and he rejoined the fight. Another turncoat from the cause of the Covenanters was the Earl of Seaforth. He arrived at Elgin, but Montrose didn't trust him, and he had him arrested. After Seaforth signed a band pledging to raise forces for the king, he was released, and sent to hold Inverness for Montrose. But either Montrose had been a good judge of character, or his rude welcome turned Seaforth off the royalist cause, because when he reached Inverness, he returned to the Covenanter side. At the end of March, Montrose set off south with an army of 2,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, by far the largest army he'd commanded during the campaign so far. He marched south from Elgin through Aberdeenshire and looted and pillaged as he went. Again, poor Aberdeen. He reached the River Tay at the end of March, but a Covenanter army under Bailey blocked his path across. This was Lieutenant General William Bailey, who we met at the end of last week's episode when the Covenanter executive, the Committee of Estates, hurriedly put him in command of another army and tasked him with stopping Montrose. With Montrose's Highlanders increasingly exhausted and agitated, Montrose planned to return north. He sent most of his army back north, but kept 200 cavalry and 800 infantry with him. He was going to loot Dundee. Damage to the walls meant that the city was quickly breached, and his army spent most of the day looting, drinking, and otherwise enjoying themselves. Dundee, in stark contrast to Aberdeen, would later receive a grant of almost £55,000 to make up for the looting. Then, around 5pm, Montrose received reports of Covenanter cavalry on the way. It's a testament to Montrose's character as a commander that he neither fled the city to save himself, as some of his subordinates urged, or allowed panic to set in among the men. His short-notice warning is another testament to his nature. Montrose would repeatedly fail to properly keep track of the enemy position, and it will cost him in time. But not this time. Montrose led an orderly retreat out of the city, with himself commanding a rearguard, and he kept his army in one piece. The cavalry, under the command of the appropriately named John Hurry, chased Montrose back north, only to find the position reversed once Montrose caught up with the rest of his army and turned around. Hurry then fought a series of rearguard actions until he reached the safety of Inverness on the 7th of May. With Seaforth's men, Hurry turned around 
and led almost 4,000 men to confront Montrose's 2,000 men. Montrose didn't keep his own 4,000-strong army for long. The weather was terrible, and Montrose's army was spread across the region looking for shelter from the rain. As the Covenanters advanced, someone had the bright idea to make sure the guns weren't clogged with rainwater. They test-fired their guns, and as the volley of shot rang out, the wind caught the sound and carried it far enough that Montrose's scouts heard. They rushed back to report this, and McCullough prepared to buy enough time for the rest of the army to assemble. He and his men had been enjoying the shelter of Aldern village, and they prepared to hold out there. McCullough happened to have the royal standard with him, and it was prominently displayed. So when Hurry arrived, and he saw this, he was convinced that the entire royalist army was present in the village. So he moved cautiously, and this bought Montrose even more time to move the actual army into position. After a brutal firefight on the outskirts of Aldern, McCullough's men were forced back, and the Covenanters took up positions in the village itself. But that brought them into an enfilade of musket fire from McCullough's troops, as well as from another contingent of Montrose's musketeers. The fighting in the village was intense, with McCullough attempting a counterattack, which was beaten back by the Covenanters. On the flanks, cavalry on both sides struggled to manoeuvre through the buildings and the fences. A cry went up from the infantry battle. McCullough was running! Now, whether he was or not, that rumour would be lethal to morale. And so Montrose ordered a Boyne's cavalry and another regiment of infantry to join the fray and steady the line. Hurry ordered one of his own cavalry colonels into the fight, but for some reason, either panic or miscommunication or just incompetence, the officer led his cavalry in the wrong direction. Lord Gordon soon joined his brother, leading his own cavalry into the Covenant of Flank, and that was it. Hurry's men retreated out of the village but continued to fight, but eventually, finally, the Covenant of Morale broke and they fled back down the road to Inverness. The Battle of Aldern was messy, and not just because of the mud. It hadn't started on Montrose's terms, and once again, his lack of information about the whereabouts of the enemy had almost caused disaster. Aldern was a victory, but it was a Fyrick victory, and despite his desire to chase Hurry back to Inverness and take the city, he was in no position to do so. He needed to recover his losses. Hurry had lost between 500 to 1,000 men, but Montrose had also taken significant casualties. When Hurry rejoined Bailey, and they advanced on Montrose again, he slipped the net, and went on a recruiting drive. Battle 5. Alford, the 2nd of July, 1645. Montrose spent the rest of May and June gathering as much support and as many reinforcements as he could while Bailey besieged Huntley Castle. The Marquis himself was still hiding in Strathnava, waiting out the storm. By the end of June, Montrose felt that his army had recovered enough that he could take on Bailey's main force. Bailey would like nothing less. His army had just been weakened by order of the Committee of Estates. A decent chunk of his force was dispatched to join the Marquis of Argyle, who was advancing north, and this left Bailey with around 1,500 men. Montrose had more than 2,000. For once, 
Montrose had the advantage in numbers, and he was determined to use it. Montrose caught up with Bailey near Keith in northern Murray, and he formed up for battle. But Bailey took one look at the well-positioned Royalist army, which, again, outnumbered his, and thought better than to run straight into Montrose's guns. So Montrose then forced his hand. He began marching south, and Bailey was forced to follow him. When Montrose's army crossed the River Don at Forbes, he ordered his men to take up position behind a hill to the west of this crossing point, appropriately named Gallow Hill. Scouting ahead himself, Montrose saw Bailey's army approaching the ford at Alford, a little bit further east of where Montrose himself had crossed the Don. The positioning here is key. When Bailey crossed at Alford, and continued down the road west, towards Gallow Hill, he couldn't see past the rise of the hill. But as he marched his army closer, Montrose's royalists began to appear at the top. With the Don to the north, running west to east, Bailey's room for manoeuvre was limited. It was an ambush. At first, neither side wanted to start the fight. Montrose was atop a hill, which would make any advance against him very dangerous. But Bailey was surrounded by the rough terrain of ditches and river marshes, not an easy target either. When the battle did begin, skirmishing between the cavalry on Montrose's right was fairly equal, until a contingent of royalist musketeers threw down their guns, drew their daggers, and ran at the horses and the riders. They were joined in this unorthodox charge by Highlander archers, who didn't drop their bows, but instead started hitting the enemy cavalry with them and stabbing at them with their arrows. The enemy horse broke, and Montrose's right cavalry were able to loop behind the Covenanter lines to charge the Covenanter right from the rear, while Montrose's own left cavalry charged them from the front. With the Covenanter cavalry either routed or tied up, Montrose's infantry advanced against the enemy foot, for once having larger numbers. It was over quickly. The entire battle took about an hour, and after that, all that was left was the chase. The victorious royalists chased the army until night fell. Bailey's army was effectively destroyed. Bailey himself blamed the interference of the politicians for the defeat. They had, after all, stripped him of his numbers advantage and pressured him to be aggressive in his chase. Frustrated by their clear lack of faith, he offered his resignation, but it was denied. Instead, the Committee of Estates ordered him to take command of what was, effectively, the last Covenanter field army in Scotland. Montrose had destroyed all the others. Montrose hadn't won without losses, and one of the most notable deaths at Alford was Lord Gordon, his newfound friend and one of the sons of Huntley. He'd been shot in the last actions of the battle while leading his cavalry. But the victory at Alford opened the way south to Montrose. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. 
Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Battle 6. Kilsyth. 15th of August, 1645. Alistair McCullough rejoined Montrose in his march. The islander had gone west again to raid the enemies of his family and gather more recruits, and he brought 1,600 men with him. Montrose then tried to take Perth, for old time's sake, but he was driven off by Bailey, now at the head of the last Covenant of Field Army. Montrose rendezvoused with the Viscount Boyne at Dunkeld, and Boyne brought with him another 400 cavalry and 800 infantry. Montrose now led the largest army he'd ever commanded, about 4,500 infantry and 500 cavalry. Now he decided to leave the Highlands and the Northeast, and take the fight to the Covenanter regime on its own ground. His target was the city of Glasgow. Glasgow was not the metropolis it is today. The economic explosion of the Atlantic slave trade and the Industrial Revolution is still some time off, but it was still one of the largest and wealthiest cities in Scotland. Montrose marched out of the Highlands, outmaneuvering Bailey's army and bypassing it, and continuing down the road. Bailey sped after him, though not too quickly. The ambush at Alford had made him cautious. He was a safe distance away, when Montrose camped near Kilsyth, about midway between Glasgow and Stirling. But Montrose also remembered Alford, for the exact same reasons. The ambush had worked perfectly and destroyed Bailey's last army. Maybe he could do it again. So Montrose led his army into the hills to the south of the road, and waited for Bailey to blunder into his cunning trap. But Bailey was no fool and he knew exactly what Montrose was trying. So he led his army off the road, to the north of where Montrose was hiding, and took up a position with a river protecting one flank and hills the other. In fact, from his new position, Bailey could see Montrose's army hiding. Nice try, James, but not this time. Bailey was content to sit and wait for Montrose to make the first move, either to continue his advance, 
or come and face him in battle. But Bailey was not alone. He had several members of the Committee of Estates on hand, including Argyle. While Bailey was happy to wait, cautious of Montrose's ingenuity, they urged action. They pointed out that the hill to Bailey's north, which he was using to guard a flank, well, that was higher ground, wasn't it? Higher ground is good in a battle, yes? Why don't you take it? And while there's truth to that, Bailey didn't agree in this particular case. He was an experienced commander, with the power of two working eyes, he'd not missed the massive sodding hill, he'd considered the option and ruled it out. Quote, I show them I did not conceive that ground to be good, and that the rebels might possess themselves of it before us. End quote. Better to stay in his strong position than risk moving to untested ground and risk the royalists getting there first. But Bailey did not have the authority to stand his ground. He knew he was due to be replaced, and the presence of the committee just weakened his legitimacy as a commander even more. Argyle, who Bailey hated, asked him what he was going to do. Bitterly, Bailey responded that his opinion didn't matter. He would do what they told him. This was, as David Stevenson puts it, a sulky abdication of responsibility. Bailey gave the orders he was told to give, and his army began to move. And immediately, Bailey's fears began to manifest. His army was sluggish and uncoordinated. They'd been expecting to stay where they were. And when Montrose saw the confused movements of the enemy army, he ordered his men to strip down to only what they needed to fight. Extra layers of clothing would just slow them down and heat them up in a hot summer heat. Then he ordered them to take the hill which Bailey was now moving his army onto. Quicker than the slower-moving Covenanters, who were keeping in formation, Montrose's infantry swarmed onto the higher ground. In the confusion, one of Bailey's subordinates began to advance in the wrong direction, against orders. Bailey sent a runner to get him back into formation, but by then it was too late. McCullough had engaged them, and men on both sides began flowing into the growing fight. Cavalry on both sides struggled with the terrain, and the key point of the battle came when a Boyne charged the enemy lines. His mounts were slowed by a stream and the heather, easy targets for the Covenant and Musketeers, who peppered them with shot the whole way. A force of Covenanter cavalry countercharged a Boyne's exhausted and depleted horse, and successfully forced them away. But then they kept chasing and they chased too far. Montrose's main body of cavalry then engaged them, and drove them from the field entirely. Now without cavalry support, the Covenant infantry were attacked from the front and the flanks. McCullough led a highland charge, which came upon the musketeers so quickly that the enemy didn't have a chance to fire. The line broke, and the battle was over. The Covenant cavalry mostly escaped, but the infantry were chased and cut down relentlessly. The Committee of Estates fled, with some like Argyle running out of the country entirely. He went all the way to Newcastle, because he'd run out of armies in Scotland, and he hoped to borrow one from the Earl of Leven. After two days dealing with the aftermath of the Battle of Kilsyth, Montrose continued his march on Glasgow, and he took the city without a fight on the 16th of August. 
Under his authority as the king's Scottish representative, he sent out summons for a parliament. But then Montrose made a fateful choice. He refused to agree to Macaulay's demand that his islanders, highlanders, and Irish be allowed to loot the city. A relief for the Glaswegians, absolutely, but Montrose's army had just emerged from a hard-fought victory. To all extents and purposes, the Covenant of Regime was dead in the water, at least in Scotland. Montrose's cause had never been closer to victory, and his men believed that they deserved to be rewarded with the spoils of war. But Montrose said no. Over the next few weeks, Montrose hemorrhaged soldiers. Many of the rank and file who had been denied the chance to loot Glasgow melted away in the days after Montrose's decision, but the greatest blow came in early September. McCullough had always been driven by different objectives than his commander, asserting familial rights, punishing the enemies of his family, and prizes for his men. Considering his job done, Montrose was now master of Scotland. McCullough led his men back to the Western Highlands to fulfil his true passions, which were mostly killing Campbells and... well, that's about it, killing Campbells. But Montrose wasn't yet secure as master of Scotland. There was no army in Scotland which could oppose him in the field, but he was far from finished. There were plenty of garrisons across Scotland which were loyal to the Covenanter regime, and Edinburgh still stood unconquered. The Covenanter government still claimed it, and that needed to be fixed, especially if Montrose was going to hold a parliament there. So Montrose left Glasgow and marched on the capital. But then Montrose suffered another blow. Viscount Aboyne decided that this was the perfect time for him to leave Montrose too. Some accounts describe him feeling slighted after Kilsyth. Perhaps Montrose's skills as a diplomat had failed him. First McCullough, and now Aboyne, had abandoned him. When Aboyne left, he took most of the Gordons with him, leaving Montrose with a meagre 500 foot and 100 horse. Montrose was only master of Scotland because the bulk of the Covenanter army was out of the kingdom. When it came back, and it will, and with a vengeance, his minuscule force, which is now smaller than when he started his campaign at Athol, well, it would stand no chance. Recruitment from the Lowlands was proving especially difficult. His previous reliance on McCullough's Irish Catholics alienated many in the region, where anti-Irish and anti-Catholic feeling was very strong. Forming a legitimate government in the name of the king, which could damage the unity of the Covenanter cause, was his only chance. But Edinburgh was suffering from a bout of plague. Even if he did take it, he risked his health and the health of his army, and he would be a sitting duck when the Covenanters sent another army. Without Edinburgh, Montrose's fledgling government was denied the opportunity to gain legitimacy from holding a parliament in the capital. He could have held a parliament in Glasgow or anywhere else. Parliament is a people, not a place. But it would be an uphill battle. Rather than overthrowing the Covenanter government and imposing a royalist replacement on the kingdom, he would be creating an alternative government, a pretender government, and forcing the Scots to choose between them. With the Covenanters still controlling a massive army in England, and Montrose barely having an army at all, that would be an easy choice. 
Montrose had achieved so much, and it was all on the brink of meaning nothing at all. With his small army, Montrose decided that the best thing he could do for the king was to join him in England. As we'll cover in other episodes, Charles's England campaign was going from bad to worse, and Montrose realised that if he retreated further into Scotland to rebuild his army and continue his campaign, the king would be defeated in England, and any Scottish successes would be for nothing. So Montrose diverted away from Edinburgh and entered the borders, leaving the plague-stricken capital, as well as any chance to make something out of his year of victories, behind. I said at the beginning of the last episode that Montrose would enjoy six glorious victories. There will not be a seventh. Battle 7. Philippa. 13th of September, 1645. On the 6th of September, someone else entered Scotland. One David Leslie, Lieutenant General of Horse in the army of both kingdoms. He crossed the border at Berwick, and he led at least 4,000 men, and these were mostly cavalry and dragoons, battle-hardened veterans of the English campaign. His force prioritised speed, and he had one particular objective in mind, to catch Montrose, bring him to battle, and destroy him and his pesky rebel army. He marched north, planning to catch Montrose in or near Edinburgh, but he soon received information that Montrose had never reached Edinburgh, and that he was in the borders as well, running for England. Leslie turned his army around. When Montrose learnt that Leslie was on his tail, he swung his army west to try and avoid him, but as we'll see, he didn't shake his pursuer. Leslie left most of his infantry behind to catch up, and raced after the fugitive would-be Master of Scotland. He caught up with his rearguard on the night of the 12th of September, and routed them. Montrose had camped for the night in and around the town of Selkirk. His officers and cavalry were in the town, while most of his infantry were across a river called the Ettrick Water. When survivors from the Royalist rearguard arrived, and reported that Leslie's army was only three miles away, for some reason, this didn't raise the alarm. For all of Montrose's strengths as a commander, as we've seen, his greatest weakness was in gathering, collecting, and using intelligence. In the morning, the Covenanter army came from the northeast, emerging out of a thick mist, advancing down the valley towards the divided Royalist army. The infantry were not prepared for a battle and hurried to form into firing positions even as the Covenanters advanced on them. An initial Covenanter cavalry charge on Montrose's right wing was repulsed by the terrain and the determination of the Royalists' remaining Irish musketeers. But Leslie was no Argyle. He was a career soldier and an experienced commander, and he had split his cavalry force into two. One half was contending with the Royalist right, the other had crossed the Ettrick, passed through Selkirk, looped around, and then recrossed the Ettrick behind the Royalist lines. And then they charged. When Leslie's cavalry smashed into the rear and flank of the Royalist lines, the game was up. Bishop Wishart, who had been with Montrose throughout the campaign, recorded that, quote, For the foot, there was little hope in flight. They stood firm and fought resolutely till offered quarter 
when they threw down their arms and yielded. But, notwithstanding the promise of quarter, these defenceless men were every one butchered in cold blood by Leslie's own orders. End quote. Whether Montrose could have changed the outcome of the Battle of Philip Hoare is uncertain. He was massively outnumbered, but he'd won most of his battles while massively outnumbered. But what Montrose could have done, and should have done, was listen to his scouts, and prepare his army for either flight or for battle. At the very least, he should have been with the majority of his men when the battle began, but he was on the other side of the Ettrick, and by the time he joined them there was only so much he could do. Montrose escaped Philippor. He would flee into the Highlands and try and rebuild his army, but the fragile illusion of success was shattered. He struggled to recruit allies and soldiers, and he wasn't helped by the return of the Marquis of Huntley, who had finally emerged from his Sutherland sabbatical, and at the worst possible time. Perhaps he had decided to return to his estates on the belief that the royalist cause was almost triumphant, and that he'd better not be hiding in Strathnatha when that happened. But by the time he'd landed in the northeast on the 4th of October, the whole situation had been reversed. Montrose tried to forge an alliance with Huntley to restore the king's cause in Scotland, but Huntley, for many reasons, was difficult. For starters, Huntley was jealous. While he had been hiding, the younger, bolder, more energetic Marquis had been winning victory after miraculous victory. He was seen to be the true protector of the Gordons, taking revenge on Covenanter tenants for Argyle's attacks on Gordon estates. Three of Huntley's own sons had fought for Montrose, and one had died for him. And despite Montrose's commission clearly stating that Huntley was his subordinate, Huntley insisted that his own commission made him the superior officer in the North. It was a painful, frustrating relationship between the two men. In an effort to win Huntley over, Montrose was willing to compromise over who was in charge, offering him joint command, desperate to get someone who, on paper, should have been his closest and most powerful ally, on side. But even then, Huntley rarely coordinated anything with Montrose. In May 1646, he would order an attack on Aberdeen, poor Aberdeen, and he took it. But like he had two years before, he did nothing with it. After a short occupation, he just left, and retreated back to Gordon territory. Huntley wanted to be a great commander like Montrose, but he wasn't, and he hated that fact, and he hated the man who made him face that fact. The height of Huntley's pettiness might be when Charles, due to events we'll cover another time, ordered his Scottish supporters to disband. Montrose tried to meet with Huntley, to discuss a shared strategy, to ensure their forces weren't punished by the victorious Covenanter government. But Huntley just ran away again. He ran away while loudly proclaiming that he would follow the king's orders, unlike someone. But then, after Montrose negotiated terms for the safety of his men and his own exile, and then disbanded as per the orders of the king, Huntley declared that he'd stay in the field. Stevenson suggests that this was yet another attempt to present himself as a defiant, noble royalist in comparison to the now disbanded and exiled Montrose. But it's all so very tedious 
Staying with Huntley until 1647, because frankly we can jump that far ahead because none of what he does really affects the rest of the narrative, Huntley kept fighting for the king, and I use that word loosely, until April 1647. The Covenanters had sent an army against him, and so he ran away, disbanding his small army. In December that year, the Covenanters finally caught him, and he was imprisoned in Edinburgh. Huntley would remain in prison for another two years, doing what he apparently did best, sitting out important events. He'd stay there until March 1649, when the Scottish Parliament decided to enforce the sentence of death which had been passed in 1645. He was beheaded. In one final twist of the dagger, Montrose outlasted him. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, including a favourite of the King, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Finsbury Park, Chris Remo, and the Earl of Pembroke, David Simpson. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.